but I bet you heard it anyway. I just told you a very funny joke, and you missed it. No, all right, all right. So here we are, uh, looking at the Bodhisattva path, discovering it in ourselves, as Prajnaparamita calls us to do. In her scriptures, the Bodhisattva is imaged as a flying into deep space. The Bodhisattva doesn't even have solid ground to stand on. Not even her or his own turf, but flies in the infinite and endless wisdom at the source of all things. Prajnaparamita. And it is said that the Bodhisattva flies on two wings, and these wings are compassion and wisdom. Well, uh, we worked with compassion yesterday, our capacity to be with what's uh, suffering, to be with the pain and And today we turn to the other wing. But before we do that, I want to tell you another way of imaging the Bodhisattva, which comes out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And it is a prophecy about you. A prophecy that is 12 centuries old. And I bet a bunch of you have heard it already. Certainly, if you've worked with me, you've heard it. But you can't say it too much, isn't that right? So I'm going to uh, begin our time together this afternoon uh, by telling you again uh, the, the, this prophecy. And I want you to listen as if recognizing that it's about you It's a prophecy about the coming of the kingdom of Shambhala, which was certainly seen as a good thing. And the hero figure in it is called the Shambhala warrior, which you would recognize, but I'll tell you anyway, is a metaphor for the Bodhisattva. So... This is how the bodhisattvas be in this uh, ancient way of seeing that seems to have such relevance in our time. It was given to me by my uh, Dharma brother, teacher, best friend of a Tibetan community in the foothills of the Himalayas in northwest India, called Tashi John. And about 25, 15 to 20 years after I first got to know them and they became very good friends, the community and I, and 
Dukuchugel Rinpoche, he then uh, told me this prophecy. He told it to me when he learned. I was not myself in Tibetan practice. I was, was then, as I am now, in Vipassana practice. And that was just fine with the Tibetans. Uh, that actually helped them feel more uh, collegial with me and my family than if we had been serious adepts. And uh, it was more like family. And uh, they didn't have to act quite so omniscient all the time. And he told me this prophecy after he had learned I'd been visiting and now and again, but based in, um, in the United States, but visiting over there from time to time. And he had learned that I had gotten involved in uh, concerns about uh, nuclear weapons production and nuclear power plants. And this may have been why he wanted me to have this prophecy. It goes like this. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time, great powers have arisen, barbarian powers. And although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, these powers have much in common. And among the things they have in common are weapons of unfathomable devastation and death. And it is just at this point when the future of all life seems to hang by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it's not a place. It's not a geopolitical entity. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. And truth to tell, you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him because there are no uniforms, no insignia, no banners to show whose side they're on, no barricades to stand on to threaten the enemy or behind which to rest and regroup. They don't even have their own home turf. Forever and always they can must only can only traverse the terrain of the barbarian powers. And it is just at this point when it is realized that great courage is required. Great courage on the part of the Shambhala warriors. Physical courage and moral courage because they are going to go into the very heart 
of the barbarian powers to dismantle their weapons. Oh, and weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go to where the armaments are manufactured and deployed and they're going to go into the corridors of power where the decisions are made and miss and dismantle these weapons, as I said, in every sense of the word. Now he said to me, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled. Why? Because they know that they are mano maya. That means mind made. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. Because the dangers that confront us now, overwhelming dangers, are not brought upon us by some evil extraterrestrial force or some satanic deity or even some unalterable predestined fate. They arise from our attitudes, our habits, our relationships. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. So he said, now's the time that the Shambhala warriors go into training. (laughs) You can better believe what I said. How? How do they go into training? And he said, they train in the use of two weapons. That's the term he used. You might prefer that he said resources or tools, but he... What are they, I asked. And he held his hands up the way the lamas hold the ritual objects in the great dances of his people. And he said, one is compassion, and the other is insight into the interdependence of all phenomena. And you need both. One is not enough. You need the compassion because that provides the fuel. That gives the motive power to move you out where you need to go to do what you need to do. And what that boils down to is not being afraid of the suffering of your world. And when you're not afraid of the world's pain, including your own, of course, then nothing can stop you. But that weapon, he said, is hot. It can burn you out. And so you need the other You need that wisdom, that insight into the radical non-separateness of all phenomena. With that, you know, and you need to know, that this is not a battle 
between good guys and bad guys. But that the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. And that we are so interwoven in the web of life that even the smallest act with clear intention has repercussions through the web of life beyond which you're capable of seeing or measuring. But he said, that's kind of cool. See, it could seem a little abstract, and that's why you need the heat of the compassion. And when I heard that, I found myself thinking of the uh, moving hand gestures of the monks down in the puja hall. And often as not, their hand gestures, which you may have seen when they came visit Tibetan monks or on film, often as not, they are dancing those hands, they're dancing the interplay of compassion and wisdom. Well, that was it. That was the prophecy. Wow, I thought I had got my marching orders. Oh, I was so excited. And my family was with me on this visit. I'll tell you exactly when it was. It was at New Year's turning from 79 to 1980. And uh, Ronald Reagan had just been elected. And uh, I hurried down to where the lodging where my uh, family was and burst in and said, Oh, well, you hear I, what I just heard from uh, Chujan Rinpoche because both my husband and our children uh, loved him very much. And, uh, and this was very exciting. And so I proceeded at that moment to tell it to them. That was my first telling of it. <laughs> and my son, Jack, who was in college at the time, I listened and listened and waited. And then he said, but mom, didn't he tell you how it's going to turn out? (laughs) I'm so glad you laughed. I laughed too. (laughs) And I said, honey, if Chukyao had tried to tell me how it's going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed anything he said. So don't you believe people who claim to know how this is going to turn out. Because it is that not knowing that brings us so awake. That razor edge uh, that's uh, where we don't know. Only this, all we know is this moment. All we know are the stakes, like crossing a ridge in the Himalayas very. And it's that not knowing that keeps us fully summoned, summoned all our senses awake, all our intention very clear, very clear, step by step.
So let's see, what does that have to do with the price of eggs? Let's see. Um, so yesterday, uh, we, we worked with the um, compassion. And I, uh, I remember uh, the uh, a dyad we did on the heartbreak where you were in twos and you were sharing with each other um, what it was you see in the natural world or the condition of our culture that breaks your heart. And uh, I recall being very moved that we uh, put that into words because it's certainly not something that our uh, mainstream society urges us to contemplate. And that what strikes me as I think on that, and you reflect on this too, just remember how the concerns that you shared in that process how far they go beyond your personal ego. How those concerns you share, how far beyond your individual needs and wants. That's true. And it showed that was something very important about that shows something very important about who we are and what we are. It shows that we are capable of suffering with our world. And that is good news. That means you're not some isolated little cyst that's... But that there's life flowing through you, that you're in the web of life with the currents of energy and knowing coursing through your part of the living web of life. And that that capacity Capacity to suffer with your world is, of course, the literal meaning of compassion to suffer with. That means you're compassionate beings. That is the attribute of the bodhisattva. To not be afraid of the suffering of the world. You can't heal anything unless you can touch it. Unless you can see it. Unless you fully take it into your awareness. Isn't that so? So that very uh, encounter with what seems hard can release a new realm of capacity for you. And I can't say that as well as a friend of mine said it in a poem. So I'm going to give you the poem. And this is so exquisite, the way, and the poet is Jennifer Wellwood, who lives here in Marin, a psychotherapist. And uh, this 
remember I talked about how our pain for the world and our love are like two sides of the same coin. That's a kind of tantric relationship, that the, the opposites are the same truth. She says, Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me Each condition I turn and welcome transforms me. So that's what can happen in the compassion work. And another friend, a student who became a minister, in our class uh, together, uh, we uh, saw the revolution of our time And I used the phrase yesterday in our milling as uh, the great turning. And I'm going to be talking more about it in a few minutes. But this is a poem that also says the power of working with this uh, resource or weapon of of, uh, compassion. Uh, Christine Fry You've asked me to tell you of the great turning, of how we saved the world from disaster. The answer is both simple and complex. We turned. For hundreds of years, we had turned away as life on earth grew more precarious. We turned away from the homeless men in the streets, the stench from the river, the children orphaned in Iraq, the mothers dying of AIDS in Africa. We turned away because that is what we had been taught, to turn away from our pain, from the hurt in another's eyes, from the drunken father or the friend betrayed. Always we were told in actions louder than words to turn away turn away and so we became a lonely people caught up in a world moving too quickly mindlessly towards its own demise until it seemed as if there was no safe place to turn no place inside or out that did not remind us of fear or terror despair and loss anger and grief yet On one of those days, someone did turn, turned to face the pain, turned to face the stranger, turned to look at the smoldering world and the hatred seething in so many eyes, turned to face himself, herself. And then another turned, and another and another, and as they wept, they took each other's hands. 
until whole groups of people were turning. Young and old, gay and straight, people of all colors, all nations, all religions, turning not only to the pain and hurt, but to beauty, gratitude and love, turning to one another with forgiveness and a longing for peace in their hearts. Thank you, Christine. As I read that, guess what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of what we were doing yesterday afternoon with the bowl of tears. And just even then, I was thinking of that, reading the words, but into my mind came the thought of how great that would be to just have public places for that. I mean, some of my students have gone out on the street and stood there uh, at a corner of the campus or uh, at Pacific School of Religion or down in the uh, downtown at reading from the list of endangered and threatened species, reading as if it were some bell tolling. But to have place for... Uh, well, you let me know. Promise, if you do it. So uh, we turn now to to this uh, uh, the uh, other wing or weapon of the bodhisattva to seeing the context, seeing the uh, interrelatedness, and actually. I remember once telling the Shambhala prophecy at the Providence Zen Center, and Sansanim, who was the presiding cleric there at the time, listened, and then he said, not two, one. (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yeah. So... um, There's so many ways that there's some. I like to draw, uh, draw some things. And one way, now when I'm working here, uh, I would like to suggest that you who can't see it just move out. Your zafus are not nailed to the floor, you're perfectly <laughs> capable of moving them out. What do you do? What do you do with these lazy bodhisattvas? (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Ta da! (laughs) All right. What's so exciting about uh, hearing these ancient teachings now and the uh, turning of the millennium now in the beginning of the 21st century is that we're getting this from 
uh, science and new paradigm thinking, this interconnectedness that was being summoned by uh, the mother and uh, those speaking for her. For us, it has been... We've looked at the world from a distance. This is the earth. And here we have been, as a, in classical science in the West, that's an eye looking. Can you see? Is that thick enough lines for you to see it? Mm-hmm. So this is the Cartesian Newtonian eye observing and backing off. It's really great to that that help the scientists see patterns and regularities that weren't there if you're just immersed in it. So it was very beautiful uh, laws of, that govern the uh, behaviors and actions of phenomena uh, to back out here. But what happened for us in the West, in mainstream West, we got stuck out there, didn't we? <laughs> and so we began to see this as something we could manage. I remember one of the first ecological books uh, 30 years ago coming out, and it was an atlas of the uh, new ways of seeing the continents and their interrelationship. And, but the title was Atlas of Planet Management. <laughs> <laughs> and this is it. Oh, my gosh. And so then this became a resource. And manufacturing and digging up and mines and uh, fabricating factories and the mills and so forth. And it became just a warehouse and then it became a sewer and it's been decades now that the we're taking more out of the earth than can be faster than can be renewed you know that and Almost as long as we've been dumping our waste into the earth and the atmosphere faster than it can be absorbed. You know that. And that our earth being viewed like this as something to be exploited has become to us not much more than a warehouse and a sewer. And it is just when this is choking us, when the acquisition of wealth that this is permitting is making us nuts that uh, we have through ancient voices that are now can be heard and from the deep ecologists and from the environmental bodhisattvas a new vision of the earth and the eye is not out there but is right in here. And both from science and from spirituality, a recognition that we are not separate from our 
lives, not separate. So the mother of all Buddhas is right there with the quantum and chaos theory scientists and the systems theory scientists and the Gaia theory scientists uh, recognizing that uh, this is a world of non-separateness. And what's wonderful. And, and, and I find that uh, this is the great task of our life, isn't it? This is the spiritual journey. This is to recognize who we are in our planet, what we are. That as one British scientist said, I've come to the conclusion that the world is so constructed as to be able to see itself and know itself. And we are that function. And in doing this work over the years, it seems to me that we know that non-separateness from earth most quickly with a tear, with our grief. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh said when he was asked, what do you, Thai, consider the most important thing to do for the sake of our world? And I think his questioners were expecting him to say, well, sit on the cushion or run for Congress or what the strategy would be. And his answer, as you may know, is what we most need to do is to hear within ourselves the sound of the earth crying. And so that's why that part, that compassion part of our work, bodhisattva work, is so important. And to recognize that and for all our craziness of, of actions, military and economic and commercial, there is and everyone, I've yet to meet anyone from any background who is not in grief for our world. So we make friends with grief, and we're not afraid of it. As I said, it's the other side of love. So that's one picture I'm going to draw for you. Another is, how am I doing on time? Another is what's um, a way of seeing what's happening now that has come to be very useful for me. And it's a way to help you to clarify what I mean by great turning. So in uh, the last book I wrote, and I wrote it with a British colleague, uh, what's his name? Chris Johnstone. He's like my brother. You know, I don't even remember my own name, but you'll tell me. You know that. Um, is the uh, to talk about what's happening in terms of our, to our world in terms of three stories, three versions of reality, three ways of interpreting what's going on. And then 
you present it and you don't tell people what is the right way. They're all right. They're all going on now. And then you invite the folks you're with, working with or organizing to take their pick. So we call this the three stories. So um, the first story is business as usual. We call it the first story because that's what we hear the most. It's the story we hear from the politicians, from the government functionaries, from the uh, corporations, from the media, corporate-controlled media, from the military. Almost all the public voices you hear, business as usual, so that's number one. But what I'm going to, instead of writing up here business as usual, I'm going to write um, industrial growth society. It's driven by the power of industry and the all-operative term is growth. This is how this political economy measures its growth and sets its goals and determines its, its uh, choices. So growth in what? Health, <laughs> wisdom, <laughs> fertility, <laughs> happiness. Stuff. <laughs> stuff. stuff. Growth in stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, you can refine that a little bit, how we come to have so much stuff. We come to have so much stuff because our going out and acquiring it puts money in people's pockets. And that's why it's made, and it's why it's made to not last very long. Obsolescence, so we have to keep buying more. So it comes down to corporate profits. Not your profits or mine, but corporate profits and market share. And that has to keep growing. And the rate of growth has to keep growing. And we have seen now where that's taking us. Because it takes us into what systems call uh, overshoot. It's taking us to, because when you, I'll just say this, and for some of you might be interesting, if you like the systems thinking. To stay in balance as a system, whether it's ecological or commercial, uh, you can't stay in balance if you're always maximizing one variable. In this case, profits trumps everything else. They may talk about triple bottom line, but social equity, workers' health, uh, <coughs> ecological, uh, recycle, all that. One factor, that's the profits. And this is tragic and it's pathetic because it causes the system to go out of balance, it can't say, and then into bigger and bigger gyrations. 
and all the time it is having to consume. But for the people to whom this business is business as usual, then all we need to do is just get back to a growth economy. And we hear that even today. And we hear that from Wall Street, and we hear it from the Stock Exchange, and we hear it from the White House. So the second story is told by... You hear it from the scientists who haven't been bought, and you hear it from independent journalists, and you hear it from activists. And that story is... And this is a term I, I borrowed from economist David Corton called the Great Unraveling. I like that term because that's what happens to a living planet and a living systems and ecosystems and biological systems. They don't just fall over dead. They begin to lose their differentiation and their memory. They be, lose uh, their variety. They lose their complexity. It's like nature begin, coming to get Alzheimer's. So it's a gradual movement toward entropy. And this is great unraveling is affecting our biological and ecological and social systems too and cultures and languages winking out around the world at a very rate speed rate of speed so that's the second story and it seems to me that the people here only know this story but the people who see the great unraveling know both stories But there's a third story. Oh, yes, there is. And that's the story of a transition underway to a life-sustaining civilization, a life-sustaining society. And this is underway far more than we would imagine if we get our news from the corporate-controlled media. But there is, in almost every domain, like green shoots sprouting up through the rubble of a dysfunctional civilization, these new ways of doing things, and actions to slow down the uh, great unraveling and to build alternatives and to see world in fresh ways. We were talking this morning and talking with the staff here at Spirit Rock about all the uh, new uh, local initiatives here in Northern California. Is this Northern California? Well, they're particularly true, but they're all over now. Uh, New ways of holding the land, new ways of growing the food, some of the very ancient ways, new ways of distributing 
new forms of currency, new indices of measuring wealth and prosperity, new ways of teaching, new ways of healing, new ways of diagnosing, new ways of settling arguments, alternatives to justice and uh, restorative circles, etc., etc. This has just been such, it's an amazing time to be alive. And we do ourselves such a disservice if we don't try to uh, oh, water our awareness with knowledge of this. And it takes an effort because the dominant media don't want us to know. So you have to look. Internet, of course, is a wonderful white place to look, as well as some brave journals that are out there. So uh, this has been called by social thinkers the ecological revolution or the environmental revolution. Or my teacher Dana Meadows called it sustainability revolution. But more and more of us are simply calling it the... Yeah. And you know that that phrase, in my experience, it's, it's a cultural meme... Uh, that's getting caught up. But it came out as we were uh, <clears throat> play-acting in a workshop how future generations would look back at this time. And they were looking back at us. And we're going to do some of that deep time work tomorrow. You're going to love it. And seeing that, oh, those people who were living then. And take 2014, imagine. They didn't know whether we'd make it or not. And they could see the desperation. They could see the death. They could see the disease. They could see the poverty. They could see the contamination. And the powers that be seemed so entrenched in their stupidity and blindness at the helm. But boy, they, oh, they were our ancestors of the great turning. And we are, and you remember, I think that crept into the milling yesterday when I asked you to look at the person in front of you as a future being, wanting to see the face of someone who took part in the great turning, a sister of back then. It so helps to broaden the frame more now than ever it has because it's so easy to take the situation we're in as normal. Don't do it. It's very easy to let the news and the reporting and the behavior of our you know, institutions treat this as if it's a normal situation. It's extremely abnormal. And we are going to be part of the uh, turning of that, the great turning. And those who uh, have noticed this uh, see that this is the third revolution of our journey, human journey. Just as big and telling as the uh, revolution that took place in the late Neolithic about 10,000 years ago the agricultural revolution when we settled down and started to grow 
in one place and harvest. And that changed everything of how we see the earth, how we saw each other, how we felt what our work was, what a human life is about, how you measure time, how you share the goods. And that took centuries. And the next revolution that was that immense started just 300 years ago in England. And what was that? Yeah, the Industrial Revolution. And boy, that changed everything to humongous of as we settled down, as we began to extract uh, minerals and fossil fuels from the body of the earth, and as we did the enclosures of the commons and brought people in to the mines and mills and factories and began to produce goods. And then we had to go to far lands to secure resources and markets. And the colonialism grew up that began to spread, spread, spread. And that changed the way we see our time under the presence of the machine mechanization of our lives. And it happened a little faster. That just happened in a matter of generation. Or with technology transferred north to south, even a decade. And now, right on the heels of that, comes this uh, revelation. Revelation. Hmm. It is a revelation. And a revolution. Um, this third revolution of our time. And I stress this because it is so easy to take it for granted as normal what we're living in and to not see how stupendous is the change underway and how that that can give direction and meaning and even a measure of glee to your life. And that you happen to be probably without much conscious forethought on your part alive here at this point where you can take part in this. Because there is absolutely no guarantee which is going to win out in the end. The great unraveling is going at a pretty fast clip. But the great turning is fruiting and spreading. If you want encouragement about that, you know, you look at a lot of what's going on in these journals, but I found a lot in thinking along the lines of Paul Hawken. You know his book, Blessed Unrest? And he talks about the largest, so he's talking about the great turning. He doesn't use the name, but he calls it the largest social movement in human history. And it's without a leader. And it's without a... um, ideology and we don't know how vast it is but it's in the millions and it is so remarkable that he's he's trying to understand it in its various permutations that he has this brilliant analogy uh, that it's like an immune response on behalf of earth that the great turning, this blessed unrest, uh, people from all walks of life in every culture, uh, 
showing up. And what's beautiful is that they're acting on behalf of something larger than their own immediate individual gain. They're acting on behalf as you are. You may say, oh, no, no, not me. I'm just as as, uh, unenlightened as anybody else. But how much, I won't go into it now, but I'm going to ask you to reflect on how much of your sincere, personal ruminations and actions are for almost nothing to do with your personal gain and everything to do with life going on on this planet. The word for this, there's a word for this in uh, the Buddha Dharma. It's bodhicitta. It's action on behalf of the larger whole. And this that so many people are being infected by this, called by this, stirred by this. Gives us a a whole different notion of what even a person can be. And it says something uh, very wonderful about what we can uh, evolve into. And just for now, what I find is I get pretty discouraged at times, troubled by the uncertainty. I look at my grandchildren. It was so good to cry. I sobbed yesterday in the bowl of water as I said their names of my grandchildren and thought the painful thoughts that come to me as I see them and what it looks like is in store for them. But with all that uncertainty, I know now there's one thing I can count on. I can, and so it's the one thing you can count on, which is the bodhicitta. You can count on your intention. And fortunately, it's the thing that's the most important. Your intention that there be a life-sustaining society. Even with things going rough and hard and dark, dark spells, when that, that is like what you steer by, So I just want to say uh, thank you for listening as I rat- rattle on and on. You can see that this matters a lot to me. And I want to tell you how I, what I want you to see about the great turning because it can be invisible to us with the television and the media focusing on the industrial growth and a lot of the media when they do have something is disaster stuff that there are three dimensions of the uh, great turning 
I mean, you may figure you'd like four or five, that's fine, but the, for me, three covers everything. And, uh, and this is where you can learn to look at what's going on to see it. So uh, there is one which we call holding actions, and that's all the actions to slow down the destruction. So those are all the political, legislative, regulatory actions to uh, keep um, the destructions uh, within limits or expose some limits. And it's also by direct action. Some of the beautiful actions now taken around the tar sands and the XL Keystone Pipeline, uh, civil disobedience, that's these actions to slow it down. And these are kind of punishing, you know. You get run out of wind or you get put in jail, get called an eco-terrorist. You get discouraged, you get beat up. You get always looking for funding. <laughs> And so people just sometimes tempting to just bow out. But if you do bow out of that for a while, you're not abandoning the great turning. You are probably taking part in it in some other form. And this is so important. Even it, most of its actions, I think, are defeated. But those that carry through, it saves some life. And it saves some species. And it saves some ecosystems. And it saves some of the gene pool for a life-sustaining society. But even if they were all uh, victories and every initiative won, that wouldn't be enough for the great turning. Because the great turning needs new ways of doing things. And so we have uh, new ways of doing things, new structures which I was mentioning before, is these green shoots. I have an assistant who worked with me for seven years, and then he just had to go and follow his heart and go back to farming up in uh, Mendocino County. There hadn't been wheat grown there for 40 years. And now, just within the last five years, He's got wheat growing and rye and uh, oats. It's just amazing how the life is ready to step right in to help. So there are these new ways of doing things. But they are not the answer all by themselves because these new ways I was talking about, new ways of holding the land, new ways of growing food, permaculture, uh, different kinds of decision-making. But they are going to shrivel and die unless they have beliefs and values, ways of seeing. And this third is a shift in consciousness.
and very central to that shift in consciousness because it's both spiritual and scientific. It's very exciting. And I congratulate you for being alive at such a time. (laughs) But almost right at the center, what is the factor in in this uh, shift in consciousness that both science and spirituality, which is so central realization... And that our earth is alive, a living system. And therefore, worthy of care and allegiance. And fortunately, uh, Sir James Lovelock, who with Lynn Margulis developed the Gaia hypothesis and the Gaia theory uh, called it uh, not, not a thesis hypothesis on uh, self-regulating atmospheric conditions, but the name of a goddess, Gaia. And I bet that those of you here are with your lives and your support or your leadership or the checks you write or the votes you cast or the meetings you go to or what you find your mind turning to are involved in at least one, if not two, if not all three of those dimensions of the great turning. And I want to just mention with a story of a colleague of mine, how you go into one action and can pop out in the other. And I'm thinking about uh, my act, my uh, colleague, John Seed, we're going to do after the break. Oh, what time is it? Uh, uh, one of his practices. So he's a rainforest activist in Australia. And his life changed when he took and undertook a holding action on behalf of one of the last stands of old-growth forest of Gondwana land up in northeast New South Wales. And he took me there to see it because they won. And he told me about the day his uh, life, his mind, his heart-mind changed. It was an epiphany, as we could say. He was trying to protect this stand against illegal logging and to hold off the illegal logging and the police until an injunction went through the provincial court system in um, Sydney. And so they were standing there back to the trees and in front were the chainsaws and the trucks with their grappling hooks and the police with their bullhorns and the paddy wagons uh, gunning their motors. And they just stood there without any weapons and just stood there with their bodies blocking the trees. And he said, at that moment, he discovered who he was. That he was not John Seed protecting the rainforest. He was the rainforest protecting herself through this little piece of humanity 
that she had cradled into existence. Can you see the immensity of that? Once you make that click of adjustment for what you're fighting for or what's fighting through you for life, that it's not just you with all your smarts and valor, (laughs) but that it's the power of life itself, of our planet herself. And so uh, he went in to a calling action, but he came out here in a shift in consciousness, knowing uh, who and what he is through all time. Same thing happened to Julia Butterfly Hill. Remember her? Anybody here remember? Yeah? She went up to save one tree and she decided to go for two weeks. And she stayed up there without touching the ground for over two years. And she touched the minds of hundreds of thousands of young people through cell phone technology and the radio. I want to uh, close this part before we go to our uh, to break uh, with a couple of poems. This isn't a poem. It's an, but it is. It's an invocation that John himself wrote for a book we co-authored called Thinking Like a Mountain toward a Council of All Beings. <clears throat> John and I uh, created a ritual form called the Council of All Beings. Have you heard of it? Yes. Anybody here done one? Oh, great. We're going to do it in, in a mini version of it in foursomes this afternoon. But I want you to just, you've been attending so beautifully I feel your uh, the keenest form of love from you, which is your attention. And now I want you to relax and just, hmm, as if you're getting a, a shower of nectar words or something. <clears throat> to let this tell you, John sees words about <clears throat> what your life is for. That's putting it rather hugely. Erase the tape there. I didn't mean that. But <laughs> let it feed your motivation. I'm reading your words, John. We ask for the presence of the spirit of Gaia. I want you to feel how close this is to what we said about Prajnaparamita. We ask for the presence of the spirit of Gaia 
and pray that the breath of life continues to caress this planet home. May we grow into true understanding, a deep understanding that inspires us to protect the tree on which we bloom and the water, soil, and atmosphere (coughs) without which we have no existence. May we turn inwards and stumble upon our true roots in the intertwining biology of this exquisite planet. May nourishment and power pulse through these roots and fierce determination to continue the billion-year dance. May love well up and burst forth from our hearts. May there be a new dispensation of pure and powerful consciousness and the charter to witness and facilitate the healing of the tattered biosphere. We ask for the presence of the spirit of Gaia to be with us here to reveal to us all that we need to see for our own highest and deepest good and for the highest, deepest good of all. We call upon the spirit of evolution, the miraculous force that inspires rocks and dust to weave themselves into biology. You have stood by us for millions and billions of years. Do not forsake us now. Empower us and awaken in us pure and dazzling creativity. You that can turn scales into feathers, sea water to blood, caterpillars to butterflies, metamorphose our species, awaken in us the powers that we need to survive the present crisis and evolve into more eons of our solar journey. Awaken in us a sense of who we truly are, tiny ephemeral blossoms on the tree of life, Make the purposes and destiny of that tree our own purpose and destiny. Fill each of us with love for our true self, which includes all of the creatures and plants and landscapes of the world. Fill us with a powerful urge for the well-being and continual unfolding of this self. May we speak in all human councils on behalf of the animals and plants and landscapes of earth. May we shine with a pure inner passion that will spread rapidly through these leaden times. May we all awaken to our true and only nature 
none other than the nature of Gaia, this living planet Earth. We call upon the power which sustains the planets in their orbits, that wheels our Milky Way in its 200 million year spiral to imbue our personalities and our relationships with harmony, endurance, and joy. Fill us with a sense of immense time so that our brief flickering lives may truly reflect the work of vast ages past and also the millions of years of evolution whose potential lies in our trembling hands. O stars, lend us your burning passions. O silence, give weight to our voice. We ask for the presence of the spirit of Gaia, whom we also know as Prajnaparamita, mother of all Buddhas. Let us take a few minutes of silence, as he called us to. Then I'll ring again before our break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.